Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at the usual place. And this week, we are talking with Maya Alepin, a graduate student at the University of New Mexico, who knows a thing or two about what I think we can call the mathematical harmonic structures of Plato's Republic. Maya, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we've talked a little bit about Plato's Republic in the podcast already. We've introduced it as a whole, tried to talk a little bit about the structure, the very complex structure of this very complex work. And then we've done another episode on introducing the sun, the cave, the line. Oh, and we've talked about the myth of Ur as well as a separate thing because it's just worth it. And in discussing the divided line, we've talked a bit about geometry, harmony, and that sort of thing. So keeping that in mind, I wonder if you could sort of sum up your research project and what you're working on at the moment. So most people have heard of this work that came out by a certain um, Kennedy, Jay Kennedy. Of the University of Manchester. That's right. His work came out some several decades after the work of a, of a gentleman named John Bremer. So my interest has been in trying to understand what these two uh, scholars have claimed and whether potentially one of them is correct or more correct than the other. Bremer's claim is quite, I think, um, direct and bold on behalf of Plato. Um, he's saying something like that the Republic can be measured... So we've got John Bremer, who came out with a very interesting article in the 90s, I think, maybe 1990, beginning of the 90s. And then more recently, Jay Kennedy came out with a book making, well, first he came out with an article in Aperon, then a book, making a related claim to Bremer, but different. Correct. So what is Bremer's basic claim? You know, I will say this about Bremer. He has made many claims, and I don't think there is a basic one. I think that what I have done is read all of his work and picked out of it what I think is basic, based on my reading of Plato, and made something of that. And honestly, that's, I think, why Bremer has been um, neglected in academia and why a lot of his work is tossed aside, because it is quite um, full of claims, and some of them are on the side of being fantastical. So uh, some people might know that Bremer claimed to have discovered a new dialogue of Plato's, for example, which is not the case. Where did, so, he, where did he discover this document? Oh, uh, he has a great story about it being on a trip somewhere, uh, I, I think in, I don't even remember, Egypt or Italy. I mean, it's a very fantastical tale. Wow. And um, if you know Bremer personally, you can understand why he comes up with this stuff. It's because Plato did the same kind of thing. He made up fantastical stories to get you to think about life and philosophy mm. and problems. So Bremer, you know, was a Platonist to the to the fullest degree. I mean, to the degree that he was willing to make up claims like that he had, you know, discovered a dialogue and that it had revelations in it that were in fact Bremer's revelations. So this is like his Atlantis story sort of thing. And there are a number of Atlantis stories in his work. And, you know, like you're not aware of his approach and of the fervor with which he loved Plato, then it's very hard to understand what he's doing. I think the basic claim that 
caught my eye and that I've worked on for about a decade now is is really very briefly and in fact mentioned in on Plato's Polity, the 1984 book. It's something like this, that if you do a process, a, a very technical process of counting the Republic, and of course, what do I mean by counting the Republic? I'm going to have to expand on that in a minute. But if you count the Republic and look at it as a whole, an entirety, a one or a unit, that structures or patterns are revealed inside of that unit, which have musical meaning. And the way in which they have musical meaning is that the narrative moments I'm talking about being important uh, occur at certain ratios inside of the text that have uh, mathematical importance. So long story short is there's a structure to the Republic that I think is basically unrecognized by academia. And that structure is measurable. And that structure is meaningful philosophically, metaphysically, musically. I think Overall, this has some impact on the way that we interpret not only Plato's philosophy, but also his artistry and the way in which he approached uh, creating a narrative structure and frame. So as you can you know, gather from my answer, I think this is a pretty multidimensional claim and a complicated one. But ultimately, the measuring is simple and direct and clear. It'd be, it'd be great to get into the, the measuring in a moment. But before we do that, I was thinking it might be good to run through a question that a lot of listeners might be asking. They're, they're thinking to themselves, okay, I've, I've looked at the Republic because I'm a, an avid Schwepp listener and I've been obsessed with Plato's Republic because of the, uh, the outrageously interesting... Good on them! Good on them. <laughs> the outrageously interesting exposition you've been giving the last two episodes. And I read this thing and it's massive and it's complicated. Now, how yes. is it remotely possible that... Plato will have structured it in such a way as to have these kind of very complex mathematical ratios in it. Was he counting pages as he wrote and kind of did he have papers spread all over his study and he was going, okay, now this bit has got to be the climb down from that book one. So You I know, so I love this question because it's really, it's really um, revelatory of the problems that we have as modern people interpreting old books, ancient texts, let's be even more technical. The problem is that we think about things like computers and papers. You just said his paper strewn around, but guess what? P Plato didn't have any paper. Hmm. There was no paper in that time. So what the hell did he have? How did he do it without digitizing you know, his writing process. I mean, I have an answer to that, but I think it takes you in a direction that's not really, I mean, it's a historical answer. It's not Go a philosophical on. answer. Go on. I mean, my, my guess from, gosh, you know, now we're into actually, um, what area is this? Anthropology? I mean, now we're talking about the way that the ancients were living and how would it be possible to create a text like this? So we got to talk about a few things. A water clock would be relevant. For example, in the court system in the ancient world, the way that testimony was measured was through a water clock. So the research I've done shows that the water clock that was probably present in Plato's time in Athens was a three-minute water clock. So, for example, that is a relevant measure of a speaking time. 
So then we want to apply that speaking time to uh, a piece of text and find out how fast was the Republic being read or how fast was the, the Republic being declaimed. It was probably being said from memory, just like Homer. So already we're into a whole technical area that is very hard to make conjectures about, but I think this is a really big uh, firework I'm going to drop right here before we even talk about the, the real technical measuring of the text. Drum but roll. I think, yeah, drum roll, really, because I think I'm probably the first person to say this. Uh, I think the Republic takes exactly 12 hours to read aloud mm. from noon to midnight. And so, I, I mean, that's part of the measuring that I think is pretty fun and interesting. That caught my eye. Okay, but now let's go backward. As my graduation gift, one of my very um, close friends and teachers gifted me a copy of On Plato's Polity. So I read that um, the year that I was leaving my senior year of college. And that was one of the claims that stood out to me. Okay, a 12-hour exact reading time? Really exact? I mean, how did Plato do that? And what is the meaning of it if he did? And why does nobody talk about it? So that's what got me interested in the question of measuring. And so, okay, it, let's put the time claim aside because that's not really the question you were asking me. The question you're, a, you're asking is about measuring the text, right? Yeah. Do you want to clarify it? Well, in Kennedy's work, he talks a lot about stichometry, the idea that ancient writers in general, when they were normally dictating their works to a scribe who was probably a slave, who was mm -hmm. just skilled at writing stuff down quickly, would be charged by the line, basically, or by the hundred lines, by the groups of lines. And books, we also know, were not a book of 100 pages. They were described as a book of 40,000 lines, 50,000 lines, Correct. whatever. Correct. And this makes Correct. sense. We have to, another technological leap we have to make in our minds is that books were scrolls. They were not Correct. codices. So they weren't the That's book right. that we know that you turn pages. They were like one long thing that you unrolled. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't talk about pages, obviously. You talk about lines. Great. Mm -hmm. The literary model that... Greeks turn toward the most are the poems of Homer, which are mm -hmm. poetic. So they are literally in lines, uh, metrical right. lines. So this provides a model as well. Correct. So you can see the, the sort of background that might have led to Plato composing in a way that is measured by lines. This is Kennedy's and I think claim. I, yeah, that is Kennedy's claim. And actually, it's Bremer's claim, is yeah. the truth. That, yeah. that was a claim made before Kennedy. And Bremer took it a step further and um, used the, you know, some evidence that, um, in fact, the copying of texts was measured in syllables sometimes in order to preserve accuracy. So there are several choices. And actually what Bremer did was all of them. He measured lines, he measured words, and he measured syllables. And of course, what happened in the end is that the syllable count was the most accurate, and it should be since it goes down to the smallest unit. So he coined what he called the Bremer unit. Mm. And a Bremer unit is 250 syllables. It takes three minutes to read. So if you do the math on the Republic, you come out with 180,000 odd syllables in a 12-hour reading time. And let me tell you a little anecdote about this, because it might also be the only opportunity I ever have to record this story. I was skeptical of this before I designed the digital um, measure, which is, this is my contribution, is um, a piece of software that just basically verifies whether Bremer's claims were accurate and within what degree of accuracy. And then I run some controls based on the same measures and see if, you know, the results vastly differ and what, what kind of um, interpretational problems arise 
for the claims Bremer made if you run a control. So that's my project, basically, in a nutshell. But what I was saying is before I ran that project, before I you know took the time to run the software and run all the data sets, and that's something I did at Oxford as part of my master's degree, I went and traveled as a young woman to see John Bremer, some random person who presented some crazy thought. And he's um, passed away now, so we can't go up into his attic anymore like I did then. But I did. And, you know, he had literally blown up every page of the Republic to a poster size or almost poster size. And he did it by hand. It's a hand count. I mean, I can't imagine working more intimately with the text other than maybe translating it, which, I mean, everybody knows is also a, a very good way to become one with the Platonic text. But Bremer did it a different way, and I think because Plato was a mathematician at heart and a Pythagorean, maybe Bremer's way was even more close to Plato's vision or something like that. So when I saw that interaction and when I got uh, clear on the depth to which Bremer had actually taken it, aside from some of his craziness, that's when I thought this really bears checking out. And if it turns out to be true, or if it turns out to reveal something about Plato's talent at composing this massive whole, it was going to be worth something. I mean, you know also, of course, that there are many concerns in academia about whether the Republic was originally written the way that we've received it, or whether maybe book one is a separate dialogue, you know, called Thrasymachus, or maybe book 10 is an add-on. So another upshot I thought in my graduate years to figuring this out would be verifying whether the Republic is a whole as it was intended from Plato. And I think that what I verified is that it is, because once you start shifting the dialogues around, taking off book one, taking off book 10, skipping something in the middle, whatever else, you lose the whole claim that Bremer made about the musical structure. Can I interrupt? Um, I'd love to come back to that, to the, the nitty gritty, I'm skeptical, prove to me that you're not just making something up a bit, a bit later. And yeah. especially when you start to mention digital controls and stuff, people are going to go, oh, that's, yeah, that's quite good, actually. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you, now, in two, two episodes ago, I ran through the overarching structure of the Republic in a super summary form as well as I could from my perspective um, to try to give people notional spots in the dialogue to hang ideas on. I wonder if you could lay out in as much detail as you think is necessary to give an idea of what you take to be the structure of the Republic. You're, you're saying there's a structure within the dialogue that isn't just apparent on the surface. You, you have to think about harmony and stuff like this. Can you lay that out for us? How does that actually work? Sure. And, you know, I am always talking with my academic hat on because I'm used to being grilled that way. But I want to say that to uh, a reader of Plato who's just interested in Plato, um, it's very interesting to notice that there are various structures at work. And the one that's sticking with them at the moment they're reading it is probably the one that they want to pursue. Mm. So there are, there are lots of ways you can read that text. It's like a hologram or a prism. I mean, that's why we're still talking about it, you know, so many thousands of years after it was written, because it's a work of art. And it's just like anything you see at the Louvre. You know, you can keep looking at it and keep looking at it, look at it a different way and backwards and forwards. 
So I'm just trying to encourage um, readers not to look for these structures because you don't have to. It's not um, interesting other than that as an academic esoteric concern. What's really interesting about Plato is the message that you're experiencing. And Plato wrote it in a way to give you that opportunity. So I really um, want to make that super clear that this is not how you understand Plato. Plato is understandable without this. This is just what happens when you start to get into a detailed study of Plato and really wish to bridge many um, problems that have been on your mind for years and years. So I don't think this is exactly um, obvious. I don't think that somebody with no experience with Plato would believe me or believe Bremer or have reason to even care about this, to be honest with you. So that having been said, the uh, patterns you talked about are very important. The image patterns, starting at the Piraeus on the edge of town, ending in a myth, you know, uh, about the afterlife, um, the progression through the cave, which then becomes a more technical line. You can see that one is static and one is in motion. So Plato had a very interesting way of he had a way of scaffolding your entry into the into the heart of his teaching or into his, mm. his ultimate vision. That's all a, a precursor to my answer. So I think the um, musical structure of the Republic that Bremer was talking about is very much theoretical and it's very much dependent on you understanding and reading the passages in the Republic about the kind of education that the Philosopher King is going to be getting. And remember, the Philosopher King is all of us, right? Everybody can pursue an education to become more enlightened and more wise and more deep. So what is that? Why does he want you to spend, for example, 10 years studying mathematics? Sounds daunting. Why does he want you to study optics and harmonics? I mean, seriously, what are we going to do with all of this? I mean, the answer, the short answer, I think, is that you bring dimension to your soul, you bring measure to your soul, you bring a method of bridging the parts of your soul so that somewhere along the line, some inner peace can occur or a, a meeting of parts into some harmony, some harmonious unit. And as everyone knows, that's the message of the whole republic. How do we create a just soul? Well, it's by coming to terms with all kinds of problems, metaphysical, personal, economic, uh, political, etc., etc. And then somehow making the parts inside agree with each other. So that's what he's doing on the, on the I call it, musical mathematical level. He's imaging that for you. He's handing us a vehicle by which we can do all the work that I just listed. So the, the structure is basically something like lay out the Republic from zero to the end. In our minds, we can be thinking of the entire text of the Republic, like a long line of text with ideally mm -hmm. all capital letters with no spaces and no punctuation, because that's how it was written in the time. Go Got stretching it. from here to downtown kind of thing. One huge long line of text. So it's a line. Yep. Okay, let's go from there. So it's a line. It's one thing. It's a unit. So it starts at the beginning and it ends at the end. So right there, there's a matching pattern. Beginning point and end point. So now imagine drawing a circle around that. 
So now you have like a, a circle of the Republic and that's the entirety of the whole work. It's simple, but it's not because of what's coming next. Okay. So I, I like that image very much too, because now we're in the realm of universes. Uh, Plato talked about the concentricness of universes. Uh, moreover, we're also talking about now the very well-known writing structure in the ancient world, chiasmus. I think it's kind of um, under-discussed these days, but I've never really understood why all the texts of the ancient world have this pattern, except Plato. I mean, it just doesn't seem reasonable to me that Plato wouldn't at least give a nod to this extremely traditional way of composing. I mean, and you mentioned Homer, and of course, he's the main example of chiasmus upon chiasmus upon chiasmus. And that's how, of course, the text was so easy to memorize. Okay, so... So I'm, I'm building this up so that you can get some perspective on why this circular chiasmic scheme is important. So now you have your big circle. So that's start point and end point. Our line of text is the uh, diameter of the circle, right? Yep, it's okay. the diameter of the circle, exactly. And I've connected the beginning and the end just with one big circle. So now take the middle of the dialogue. So you could just fold it. I mean, you don't need a digital um, measure of that, although it's nice to have one. And if you're interested, the syllable number at that moment is something like 90,500. Okay, so now you have a midpoint. So now I want to expand this image and apply some musical ratios to it. So a musical ratio that is probably the most ubiquitous in the ancient world and the most well-known, and if anyone wants to pursue um, ancient music, you know, any book on the ancient um, musical world will, will explain to you the importance of these numbers, and they are. So we have to imagine when I say is as to, imagine a ratio, okay? Mm -hmm. So six is to eight, as nine is to 12. So we have six colon, eight colon, and then another colon, yeah. nine colon, 12. Yep. So that's all. I mean, you just need to write that in big numbers somewhere on your page so you know what I'm talking about. So now I'm imagining that the midpoint of the dialogue is 12. Right. Okay. So we've, I've used up the ratio from 1 to 12. So we've used up all of those points. So now we're just going to drop in the ratios that are relevant. Um, the octave is a 2 to 1 ratio. So that's the one that I drew at the big circumference. Mm -hmm. uh, a half octave is, of course, going to be the uh, midpoint. Uh, a 3 to 2 ratio represents a fifth. 4 to 3 is a ratio of a fourth. Yeah. So that's all we're working with, just those very few numbers. And then on the other side of the midpoint, we're working with the doubling of those numbers. What you can do is make a chart like as follows, 0, 6, 8, 9, 12, 15, 16, 18, 24. Those are the relevant points that we're talking about. Octave, fourth, fifth, double octave. Where does the 9 and 15 come from? That's a problem. I think this is where things get a little bit um, interesting or maybe confusing or maybe we need to reject the whole thing from here. But it has something to do with the signal of this measuring being at the divided line of the dialogue. Mm. So I, I think something happens here where Plato is giving us a sign 
that we need to measure the dialogue by putting the divided line discussion at the golden section of the dialogue. So I think that might be where some readers or listeners get the idea, oh, this is a measurement right here. So I think when you look at the whole image, you're getting all of the important musical ratios connected to musically important narrative moments. And you're getting a a reminder or a signal to measure the dialogue when we're talking about measuring dialogues. Interestingly, before we started the episode, we were talking a bit about Leo Strauss, who I think we both agree got the Republic wrong in his reading. Mm -hmm. That that might be an understatement, but sure. But um, what he does say to define his methodology of esoteric writing is that the esoteric writer will somewhere in their dialogue, usually not in an obvious point like the beginning, leave a clue for the attentive reader that they have to look deeper than Mm -hmm. the surface text for Mm -hmm. more information or for the real message. I hate to give him credit for that, but yes, I think that's the correct idea. And I think that's why some people get nervous when they look at the pattern that Bremer um, brought up, Mm -hmm. because maybe it's not perfectly musical in the way we want it, but I think it's perfectly meaningful in the way that Plato's text is. That is to say, we're highlighting the same matters of importance that the the narrative is is highlighting. The reason that I, you know, the chiastic part is important because of the following um, occurrence. For example, at the points 6 and 18, which are a quarter of the way from the beginning, a quarter of the way from the end, you draw your big circle. So now we're looking at a series of concentric circles. Mm And then, I mean, not only are we creating this cool chiasmus, right, but something is occurring in the dialogue the same a quarter of the way from the beginning as it is from the end. So you see, like, an unexperienced reader of Plato is thinking, what does the beginning of the dialogue have to do with the end? I mean, you could say nothing, right? But once you've really sat with that dialogue and lived with it, you can see how very, very important it is to read them as mirrors of each other. If you read the text a quarter of the way from the beginning and a quarter of the way from the end, you find yourself in a discussion about Glaucon and his musical nature. So I don't think it's accidental that that happens. If it is accidental, I think the onus is on the person claiming that it's accidental to tell me why there would be so many of them that occur um, in such measurable chiastic pattern. You've told us that at the quarter of the way through and three quarters of the way through, or quarter of the way through and quarter from the end of the dialogue, we have references to Glaucon and his musicality. What occurs at the other intersections of the circle with our line? At the beginning, I mean, I can supply beginning and end. We have the very first word of the dialogue, Katebein, uh, I went down. And then at the very end, we have this ascent narrative, the myth of Ur. So we have a going down and a going up, which obviously parallel each other really nicely. But what about at our fourths and fifths? Yes. And I just want to say Eva Braun has a beautiful book. And and the chiastic part uh, I added to the Bremer part 
through Ava Brand's work, mm. because she has an image like this about reading the Republic through these concentric circles. Yeah, I, just to say that that argument has been made in extremely great and beautifully written, uh, the relationship, for example, of word zero to the last word of the dialogue, or I should say the beginning and the end. Mm. The eight and 16 relationship, I think... I mean, it's very interesting. There's two parallels that go on in those two. And, you know, this is the whole bulk of my study is what are these what are these moments and why do I care about them and what are they meaning in terms of Plato's greater image and greater message and in terms of his metaphysics. But just to be brief about it, points 8 and 16 both discuss the question of one and manyness. Mm. And I think that's the whole topic of this ratio is that we're talking about a one and many inside of it, which is, I think, uh, Plato's theory of parts and wholes. How do they relate? They relate in a musical way. And in both uh, of those passages, there's also a discussion of musique, mm. of music. I mean, musique doesn't translate exactly no. to music, but uh, musique, the whole world of music, the whole life of music, the way it's measured, the way it's understood... Um, so at eight, there's a discussion about um, Daemon of Oa, who's brought up prior to that as well. Who's and he? Daemon was a musical philosopher, I guess is what you would say. And um, he was a real historical figure. And the fact that he's brought up in the Republic so much and in other dialogues as well, I mean, there in itself is evidence of Plato's interest. You know, obviously he knew these people. Obviously he wanted to know what they were trying to contribute. He was trying to make peace with their arguments inside of his own arguments. Damon was concerned with modes, which we would call something like scales in the modern day. So like the concern Plato's presenting is what kind of music should we use to educate children and philosophers? What kind of songs, what kind of culture should we expose them to to make them better people? Damon was a philosopher about that, and he had opinions on certain scales or what they're called modes in his time. Uh, and so that's why uh, it's inside of the conversation of what we ban and what we censor and what we allow in the Republic. So at 6 and 18, we have Glaucon and his musicality mm -hmm. in all its glory. Then at 8 and, and 16. 16, we have discussions of the one and many. Very important to keep in mind that the one and many discussion is directly relevant to the way in which ratios are relating in our mm -hmm. discussion. So remember, we have a one, which is the whole republic, and a many inside of it, which is the um, structural pieces that we've been talking about. So the, the question of how the one and many relate is the question of this image. Uh, 9 and 15, I think, are, are a nice, easy one. It's three-part soul is at 9, which is 435B. And uh, the divided line is at 509. The divided line, remember, I think is a, one of those kind of marker moments. So I, I really would expect to see a matching moment on the other side. I think a three-part uh, to four-part uh, items is kind of uh, cute on Plato's part, since the number were mm. the numbers we're working with are three and four. And uh, 
Yeah, that is that. Oh, very clever, Plato. Well done. The other thing is in the divided line, of course. The divided line is a golden cut uh, line, which is (laughs) not everybody agrees on that, by the way, Earl. I know, but it is. But it is. And and the reason no one agrees on it, I would argue, is that Plato doesn't exactly come out and say it in a clear way, which is his normal way with these mathematical things. The same Mm -hmm. thing with the nuptial number. He he put the data there for you to nut it out, but he doesn't say, there's this great year. There's you know And do you know why? I think there's a very easy answer. What's what do you think? I mean why doesn't he just give it to you? Why isn't there an answer? Because I think he is being esoteric. This is the thing. It's very easy to say that he did this for his own purposes, to be smart, to be esoteric, but he didn't. The esotericism is in service of his soteriology. Sure. The esotericism is not for the sake of itself. That's it's not plain. what I'm saying. So let's talk about the, the number, for example. Of, mm-hmm. Have you read Adam's book, The Nuptial yeah. Number of Plato? Ah, uh, yeah, sometimes. So he, he basically analyzes the thing in terms of cross comparison with all the other mathematical texts of 5th century and 4th century that we have to try to figure out exactly what Plato's saying because he's writing at a time when mathematics, arithmetic is being developed so they haven't got the same kind of set across the board terminology that we have now. So you can just say addition, subtraction, divide, cube this, blah. But Adam's done the work really well and he's saying, look, Plato's speaking in a very compressed way but he's not speaking in an esoteric way in the sense that he's trying to mystify us. He's trying to make us work. Correct. Great. Fine. I would still say that he is being esoteric in the, in the base root sense of the term for the initiated only. In other words, you don't cast pearls before swine. People aren't ready for stuff. They have to get Mm -hmm. ready before they're ready for it. So this is a way of get ready. Like you got to crunch the numbers. You got to... Maybe the only disagreement I have is that there's a technical sense of initiated in the ancient world, which I don't think applies to the Platonic vision. I mean, I think Plato is still being read and studied and loved today because his statement was more progressive and more universally available than I think we can even kind of conceptualize. I mean, to me, the Republic is, you know, like a, a love letter to every person who wants to be happy. It's it's a love letter to every human being who wants to find meaning. It's a roadmap to yourself. And so, I mean, maybe that sounds highfalutin or whatever it is, but... Well, no, it sounds surprisingly democratic in the platonic right, context. But, but, but that's exactly my message is that, you know, anyone who picks up this book can see that the divided line is written at the divided line of the dialogue if they think about it or if they you know sit with it or be with it long enough you don't have to be initiated into anything you don't have to be educated in some certain way you just have to live with it so that's the way in which i think plato was just in a class of his own no matter who you are it it can talk to you and that, it really, that's very important to me because I think Plato is so often presented as a demagogue, as somebody who wanted a case system, as somebody who believed in certain people ruling other people. And I think a very close reading of the text actually reveals something more like the inner structure of your heart dictates all of those questions. And you can live in this just society even if it doesn't exist. And guess what? That's the message at the very center of the dialogue 
at what what I would call the half octave, or you could call it a it's a double octave. It would be the at the octave. So at the twelve point, the or discussion the, the one to two ratio of the dialogue dividing yeah, exactly. into two equal parts. That brings us to our final point. So please tell us what happens there. That's what happens right. at this crucial well, central point? I think this is probably the most overlooked moment in the Platonic corpus, or one of them. This is where Plato says, this republic probably will never exist, and that's okay. It can still exist inside of you. I mean, and of course, he didn't just put that one message there. He also starts the third wave of the argument at that point. So there's an incredibly important philosophical shift at that moment. So for all the academics who don't like my flowery version, you know, there is a more important, say, narrative moment occurring. But to me, what's important at that moment uh, is this discussion about creating the republic inside of you. And to me, that's the discussion that Plato most wanted you to internalize. And so you can always open the book right at the center and read it to yourself. It's very easy to find right at the middle. So getting back to the boring number crunching stuff, descending again from the heights to mm -hmm. which we've ascended. Yes. We have these, what you've identified as a number of very significant points in the Republic. No one's going to deny that the points you've identified are very significant. And just to be clear, Bremer identified them. I checked to see if Bremer had them in the right places and or if he was making it up somehow or if he mm. was confused. And so, so I verified it and I studied it, but I didn't find them. You mentioned earlier that um, you did this with the help of some software. Can you just quickly run down how the software works? It's very simple. It's a tokenizer. The software reads text files one line at a time. Uh, the software ignores all the punctuation and all the diacritical marks, so no counting there. And it also knows what all the diphthongs are. It, it has a record of all the known diphthongs programmed into it. So then the software divides words by identifying the empty space after the word. This is the process that's called tokenizing. So once the tokenizer has identified each word, and that's just how we generate a word count, then the program goes even smaller and reads the letters within the word. One of the cool things about using a digital technology for a project like this is if the spots you've identified in the text, which uh, are of an interpretive significance that, let's say, a hypothetical Plato expert is going to listen to it and go, oh, yeah, those are really key spots, like tripartite soul, yes, really important, divided line, really important, ooh, um, this Glaucon parallelism, that's very interesting. Beginning and end, obvious chiastic structure. They're going to, you're going to pique their interest. You can, um, you can crunch numbers, but what you can do crucially, which I think Jay Kennedy has so far failed to do, and he's been criticized by this in an article on uh, methodological problems with his work, is you can do a control case. And I wonder if you could tell us about the control cases you've done on the Republic. Very interesting. You basically removed... The first book of the Republic, the, the introductory frame narrative and Thrasymachus and all this sort of stuff, and ran the numbers on the remaining bit and took away book 10, the myth of Ur and related things, and ran the same ratios on the remaining bit. And in both cases, you didn't come up with anything like as elegant a rational structure to the development of the, like the, the central point. Yeah. For example, I think you pretty much summarized it exactly. I mean, it seemed to me that if in fact these nine points were as interesting as I thought they were, then if I ran a control, I would expect not to find 
much symmetry or chiasmus at all. You know, I want to rephrase that, though, because it's not about what you expect to find. It doesn't matter. You just try it and see what happens. Yeah. And what I, what I found is, and, you know, I know that some people will criticize it because they'll say, well, you're, you're finding what you're looking for. Mm. Um, and, I, and I challenge them to really study these three data sets that I've generated because one is very clearly meaningful in a way that two others are not. And you could say down to the very basic overarching frame that you lose if you take off book one or book 10. So yeah, I mean, the middle point becomes very pedestrian and boring. You lose those matching points about Glaucon. You lose those matching moments about three-part soul versus four-part line. I mean, the divided line, for example, no longer occurs at the divided line. I mean, right there, I'm feeling nervous already. Yeah. To me, that's really high level because it appeals to everybody. There's an image, there's a sound or some kind of reference to sound, even though I shouldn't say that because we know he's not an empiricist, but he's involving the senses, the music, there's a theory, there's mathematics. It's got it all. It's a prismatic view of the entire universe. <laughs> Maya, I think that is as good a stopping point as we're going to find for our episode Maya Alipin thank yeah. you so much for being on the podcast and to all our listeners until next time be like all the mathematical structures in Plato and stay esoteric <laughs>